Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning. Welcome to New Books in Catholic Studies. I'm your host, Piotr Krasitsky. I'm professor of history at the University of Maryland in College Park. Uh, this channel is a joint initiative of the New Books Network and the American Catholic Historical Association. I'm very pleased to have with me today as my guest, Professor Brenna Moore, uh, speaking about her marvelous new book published by the University of Chicago Press in 2021, Kindred Spirits, Friendship and Resistance at the Edges of Modern Catholicism. Welcome, Brenna. Thank you so much, Piotr. Great to see you. Great to be with you this afternoon. Thank you so much. I'm just going to introduce you briefly, and then we'll jump right into the conversation. Brenna Moore is a professor in the Department of Theology at Fordham University. Her teaching and research focuses on Catholic intellectual history in the modern period, and she's the author of two books, Sacred Dread, Rice Samaritan and the French Catholic Revival, 1914 and 1945, and then the book that is the focus of our conversation today, Kindred Spirits. She's also just taken over as president of the American Catholic Historical Association. Uh, if I may start our conversation off with a pretty open-ended question, uh, why did you write Kindred Spirits? Well, I, <clears throat> I had... Um... I had considered the topic of the importance of friendship in this period of Catholic intellectual history long ago, even when I was a graduate student writing my dissertation. So I wrote my dissertation on a woman who was a poet and a mystic, Rais Samaritan. And some listeners may be familiar with the name Jacques Maritain, who is one of the most important philosophers for Catholics in the 20th century. And I wrote my dissertation on his wife, who was a sort of under understudied, underexplored, very fascinating intellectual. And I just got to know the world of kind of Catholic creativity in the 1930s and 40s. And it was clear then how important friendship was to those people, um, you know, friendships that were endowed with not only a political, moral meaning, but a deeply, deeply spiritual and religious meanings too, that I would find things in correspondence. You know, you make God present real to me when God is otherwise absent during the war. But when I was a young scholar, a younger scholar, um, a graduate student, and then, you know, an assistant professor on the tenure track, eventually, it was like friendship was almost an embarrassing topic. It was stereotypically feminine. Here, I'm a young woman, and Catholic intellectual history is pretty male. You know, it's a kind of a clerical narrative. Um, the people that I worked on, mostly men work on those people, Jacques Maritain, Neotomism. And then if I was also writing on a woman, a woman writing on a woman, and then on friendship, it was like an over-feminization. So the, my first book, it was like I had to force myself to sort of steer away from the topic that I found personally so fascinating and that I knew was so important, um, but instead do something more typically, I don't know, kind of masculine or political or recognizably intellectual. So I wrote on modernity, 
war, the Holocaust, you know, kind of that seemed a little more tough and respectable. And then finally, you know, I I was just working on other additional people in this network who were kind of on the margins of the Jacques and Rice Samaritan, the people that eventually figure into my book. And I was just doing some kind of intellectual recovery archival work on some unknown women and people of color, Catholic thinkers. And friendship was just so, so central as an, as an entire worldview that kind of brought together a, a, a whole community of Catholic thinkers. And by that point, I just didn't care. I was like, fr- friendship is it. This is this is the main thing that was going on. And by that time, I kind of had tenure and I just thought, this is what interests me. This is what's important. This is what hasn't been talked about. So I'm just doing it. And And of course, now I look back and think, you know, all graduate students, you know, should just do whatever they find to be most interesting. It's like, you're just so scared to say what you really find interesting, or we're so scared to kind of say what really, really um, you're drawn to into your field, like almost like that's embarrassing or something. But I think we all probably have the little, I don't know, more personal things that get us excited about the worlds that we study. And so I kind of just wish I would have been more open about that early on. Uh, so that that was what, that's a little bit of the backstory. And there's there's much I could say, much more I could say, but I'll just pause there. Well, I, I wanted to say that's a brilliant way to start in terms of advice, I think, for grad students who might be listening in or young scholars sort of conceptualizing where they want to go and why. I, I have to ask, so I, I understand your path to uh, the, the topic of, of spiritual friendship. Obviously, the meaning of friendship in our own world has changed a lot, I would imagine, over the course of the time you've been thinking about it, right? So this may sound like a bit of a maybe a, a, a trivial way to start, but certainly for today's uh, world, the, the COVID-19 pandemic era, uh, online existence has become one of the defining ways that we understand and maintain friendship. But even before that, your book fundamentally reconstructs social networks uh, through the lens of friendship. And to a 21st century audience, that can mean something so dramatically different, uh, even those who have a, some basic sense of the subject matter. So how do you reach your audience in terms of making perfectly clear, not just that this isn't about some kind of commodified uh, notion of friendship, but that really friendship is the essence of spiritual life? No, I don't think that's a trivial way to start at all. I think um, I think that's getting right right to the heart of it. And, you know, it was my, I say in the book, in my acknowledgments, I thank, first of all, my Fordham undergraduate students, that I started talking a little bit about spiritual friendship to them when I would give lectures on Catholic intellectual history. And they found it so fascinating and so interesting and would ask more questions. And they invited me to give a lecture on it on campus because they found it so different from the way we typically think about friendship now. And you can have, you know, a thousand friends on Facebook and, um, but that, I think in most of their lives there, they had, they could resonate with, you know, a few very, very, very close, close friendships in their lives. And they were really, really interested in ways of endowing those small, you know, count on one hand relationships in your life. And can you, and endowing that with moral, spiritual, 
significance beyond just the significance of, oh, I take a break, hang out with my friends, sick of my parents, hang out. Like this was really the kind of central anchor in all these people's lives. And I think some of my students could relate to that in some way. And also they were interested and we ended up talking quite a bit about the materiality of friendship that has really is so easily disappeared when friendships move online. You know, the way that I even discovered the existence of these friendships was going into archives. And, you know, Piotr, I know you've done a lot of archival work too, that when you open folders, you're literally holding correspondence and envelopes in your hands. And often when I would open envelopes of people, there would be little religious objects tucked in to the envelopes and the letters that friends were exchanging with one another. Sometimes a photograph that was signed with a loving epigraph, a loving signature, sometimes little religious medallions. But the correspondence between friends was a really sort of way that spiritual friendship became materialized, you know, with, you know, um, materialized and kind of traversing around the world with these little objects, photos, letters, medallions. And we all talked about, you know, with the students of how special and wonderful it feels to get something in the mail or a homemade card or a real picture of friends and how different and how truly much more special that feels. Um, And so, you know, some of my students then much more, you know, that was kind of in the beginning, they were inspiring me in, in particular directions with the book. But then during COVID, you know, speed up, 10 years after my book was done, talking with some of my students about it, to get through the beginning of COVID, a lot of my students talked about a recovery of kind of writing letters to one another. You know, people were so miserable living in their parents' basements, are my undergrad students. And, you know, sending letters in the mail was sort of a recovery of a, of a lost art in a sense. And I think it kind of goes with some of the, I don't know, Generation Z interest in recovering these kind of almost like an artisanal quaint lost art, like, you know, letter writing and growing vegetables. And it's, there's like a little bit of a, a nostalgia factor, but they, they were really interested in, in the way this friendship seems very different um, and something special about that. Uh, that makes perfect sense. And I, I just pedagogically, I think that that's really powerful in a way that really speaks to today, literally. I'm curious Given, uh, I mean, if we turn to the specific characters who inhabit your book, some folks you mentioned, Raisa and Jacques Maritain, their lives are very well documented, partly by you in your own earlier work, uh, but in the sense that their archives exist and are pretty well organized, even if they're, they're, they're not necessarily all in one place. On the other hand, it seemed like you had to do a lot of reading against the grain and investigative work for some of the other folks. In the epilogue, you make the point that um, folks like uh, the Chilean Nobel laureate Gabriela Mistral and other protagonists of your book really didn't want their archives to be collected and didn't want to be tracked, uh, if we can put it that way, in the future. So in some sense, if I can, if you don't mind me putting a little bit provocatively, do you feel like you were following the intentions of some folks and going against the intentions of some of the others when you were following that material path of friendship? I I do, you know, I, I do feel that way. Um, and I think especially, you know, they were, pro- you know, much more private about their love lives, their emotional lives than maybe 
today, you know, and that's kind of connects to this another topic we could talk about the sexuality in, in this world. Um, and so a lot of the material that I found was material that you would consider private, you know, letters or semi-private like eulogies that were read at funerals that people wrote for their friends. But some of it was public. Some of them published books on their each other's friends, especially after a friend died. Um, some named their academic and their political organizations with the word amitié in French or um, amistad. And so friendship was sort of publicly accessible, but in terms of the practice and their own experiences of spiritual friendship in their lives, that was me kind of prying, oh, prying a bit. So that was, I think, um, going against the grain of, of their wishes of how they would be known publicly. And even, you know, some of the thinkers, Gabriela Mistral, Jacques Maritain, there's even lines that they said, um, you know, some correspondences with their friends were made public, published while they, before they died. And they said something like this made public something I never wished, I never wished to be made public, you know? So this was a a sense their private lives, I I would say, but I think I, I so am okay with that because it was so much more than their private lives. It was really kind of the inner sense of sensibility, the sort of fuel of pleasure that galvanized their political work, that internationalized kind of Catholic ideas in this period. I mean, friendship was kind of the creative and um, almost emotional and even almost physical power, I think, of this network, this global network of Catholic intellectuals. So I feel like we don't really get what was happening in terms of Catholic creativity without in this period, mid-century, um, without understanding some something about friendship. You mentioned, uh, I, I'm not going to throw quotes at you, but there's one that really stuck in my mind, that the realm of f- spiritual friendship is still obfuscated beneath the smooth surface of the history of ideas. And that stuck with me in part because a lot of, some of these uh, protagonists in your book, and I should say for the audience, we'll we'll talk about a few of them specifically, but there's a real range here. Some of them are almost tip of the tongue. I I don't want to keep coming back to the Maritans, but Gabriela Mistral just said she's a Nobel laureate. And then there's uh, Claude McKay or Ellen Terry, who, I mean, you make the point several times in your writings about them are almost forgotten. Uh, and I wonder if this has to do with publishing and how publishing and how the imagined self of a published author uh, interacts with what you were just talking about. And I, without even necessarily going to the lofty metaphysical heights of, of uh, what you know, spiritual fulfillment. And your book, I think, does an extraordinary job reading those. But at that entry level, if you think about it from history of ideas, history of the book, history of the printed word, uh, is that a, a roadblock to understanding friendship if we simply follow more classical methodological paths? Yeah, I think that's that's a great question. And I, you know, was stuck a bit on that in my the course of my research too, because there were so many different things going on with the book. It was me tracking sort of this, what I call a kind of emotional undercurrent of 20th century Catholicism. So it's kind of tracking this emotional undercurrent of an intellectual movement. But 
because I was unearthing the stories and the thought of so many people who weren't so familiar to English speaking readers, like um, Claude McKay, English speaking writers, or especially English speaking writers interested in Catholic stuff, like McKay and Marie Magdalene Davy from France, um, yeah, Alan Terry, Paulette Nardal, that I also was, was, it was very clear to me that my readers, English-speaking readers, mostly who are interested in religion or Catholicism, are going to be encountering these people for the first time, especially the women, people of color. I don't want to reduce them to their relationships. These were brilliant poets, brilliant scholars of mysticism, Devi. And you almost want to, you know, for the sake of their um, intellectual gifts and their contributions to modernity say, no, look at, look at her. She was this complete rock star theologian of mystical theology. And let's look at what came out of her mind instead of just thinking about how she was feeling and what was happening with her body and what was happening interpersonally, you know? And so I didn't want to reduce them to just their relationships, but so I really, the whole trick of the book was trying to um, situate their intellectual contributions in art, theology, philosophy, poetry, to ground them in the interrelational context that really provided the creative soil of their work. So kind of trying to move between these two spaces of sort of a micro history, their kind of interpersonal histories, and this larger kind of macro and even maybe intellectual, broader intellectual history. And so in each chapter of the book, I deal with a figure or a duo or a triad, and I really try to move between um, you know, their correspondence, their interpersonal life, and then look at the larger intellectual contribution they were making to the world, whether it was poetry or the study of Islamic Sufism or the study of medieval mysticism or the relationship between Jews and Christians during the rise of Nazism. But that was really, really the trick was not to make it only an interpersonal story, which I would be much more willing to do on a book on like Henri de Lubac, Jacques Maritain, the people in the book for whom there's already, even someone like Simone Weil, who's in the book, someone for whom there's already so many books written on their ideas. But for some of these, like, especially, you know, the black women in the book, Ellen Terry, Paulette Nardal, or Davy, you know, the, the only woman who was really, really, as far as I can tell, really as, um, widely published in the Ressourcement movement, you know, the recovery of pre-modern mysticism, there's nothing on them, you know? So I would really, I want everyone to see what they wrote and what they, what they contributed intellectually and culturally and socially to this, to this world too. So that was kind of the trick of the book. I, I think you strike that balance absolutely brilliantly. And it is very tricky because for folks like Simone Weil, it's, you could almost write literary nonfiction. And certain aspects of that genre would lend themselves to exploring the spirituality. And, and, and I, I think that the, the, the question, you brought it up earlier, of sex and sexuality also figures well here because there are these wonderful passages in your book where you say, it's not about sex. Why is everything reduced to sex? It doesn't matter if they were lesbians or not, or if they consummated or not, etc. And I imagine that most intellectual historians, uh, particularly of religious thought, don't dip into those types of questions that often, but they're essential to tackle. 
in in your book. I'm just could could you maybe say a few words for the audience about yes, how you understand that sure. relationship? Sure. Yeah. Thanks. So this is the topic about which I feel the most uncertainty. And I, and I, I was so nervous. I mean, when I was even writing that section about sex and sexuality, I was so nervous and, um, and I still a little bit like read it, you know, kind of squint while I reread it. I'm not sure if I, I pulled it off or if I'm not sure if I'd say, I, I think I'll always be evolved, you know, I think you pulled it off. That's just oh, my well, two cents. You. So basically, you know, for, for listeners who aren't familiar, you know, this is a moment in Catholic history that is really known for helping lay the foundations for the Second Vatican Council. This, these were kind of the thinkers that really moved to a much more kind of open and creative response to modernity. So these are people um, that we point to in religious history, Catholic history, as um, you know, these really kind of pioneer, 20th century pioneers. They helped us think about things like democracy, Catholicism, openness to other religions and so forth. Um, but everyone knows there really wasn't a whole lot written on sex and sexuality. What you get from that community in terms of explicit writing is a lot of what we get even today, just tons of silence, like uh, just don't ask, don't tell. They, It was just really a, a, a topic in terms of intellectual reflection that was really shrouded in mystery and silence, just like the documents from Vatican II. There's just very little written on sexuality. So it's sort of your typical kind of Catholic silence around sex. But you go in to their private lives in some way, in the way that I did, and you see that these friendships that they had were very, very much erotically, even sexually charged, even if I really say, and I this is what I say, and this is what I believe, I never can really know for sure if these people were actually having sex or not. Um, I know that some of them were open, if reluctant to ex- reluctant to discuss it in detail, did have you know, sexual relationships with people, you know, Claude McKay, um, Gabriela Mistral. And there was sort of a queer vibe that ran through a lot of these, a lot of this, this network, but other people like Jacques and Raisa Maritain had a celibate marriage. Um, there were priests and nuns in, in this network. Um, and, but the, the realm of spiritual friendship had a kind of passion that would look to us much like, like a sexually charged passion. You know, I go to bed dreaming, you know, I go to bed thinking of you, 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 you know, you make up all the dreams. I wake up missing you, you know, things like that. Very loving, very erotically charged. But I don't think that the best way, the interpretive way into these relationships is to think, well, this was just all about sex. These people all either just really were having sex or they were wanting to have sex. And the quote unquote spiritual friendship was a kind of code that was masking something that was otherwise taboo, queer sex or um, sex outside of marriage or sex between even male and female friends. But I don't think that that's the best way to do it because a lot of these spiritual friendships worked 
in ways that wouldn't exactly map on our binaries of are they gay? Are they straight? Were they having sex or not? Were they in love or not? Were they friends or lovers? It seems to sort of exceed the bounds of that, those binaries altogether. I mean, the friendship that I talk about between Massignon Louis Massignon, the Islamicist, was with a woman, Mary Cahill, but he's often known as being sort of a closeted queer scholar who was married to a woman and had children. But although he was perhaps closeted queer, had sex with his wife and children, the friendship that I'm talking about was with a woman. And it seems to have been a very intense spiritual friendship. There's no evidence that they actually had sex, but it was very much a spiritual erotic friendship, I would say. The other one, you know, between Gabriela Mistral and the Maritans, I'm pretty almost certain that was never, ever a sexual friendship. But Mistral was in a relationship with her lover all during that time. It's just not like whether Jacques and Gabriela had sex. It's just, I don't, I feel like that's not even the most interesting thing remotely what was happening. Um, But so I really, really want to talk about the ways in which these relationships their emotion, even their eroticism, their spirituality existed sort of in and in, in excess of just physical sexuality. There was a there was much more that sort of exceeds, it seems, the boundaries of that. But on the other hand, I don't want to say that physical sex is some locked garden elsewhere that just because they don't talk a lot about that, we can't know anything about that or that's taboo because Um, I want to also name those silences because it is part of a kind of Catholic shame or taboo around physical sex that we, that was part of their world. And that's still with us today, you know, that there was a kind of silence around physical sex then and now. And it reminds me, you know, I was reading an interview with a Catholic writer, a gay Catholic, a contemporary gay Catholic writer in the New Yorker. And he said, the, the interviewer said to him, you know, he was Irish Catholic. Have you ever come out to your parents as homosexual? And he said, are you kidding? You know, my brothers and sisters haven't even come out as heterosexual, like in Catholicism, there's like, no one's talking about sexuality. So in a way that was kind of part of the world too. So you have to kind of be honest, you know, that, that there's just the, the silence and the shame around physical sex was, was part of this world. But whether or not they were having sex, I just don't think is the most interesting question or is the most important thing that was going on. Well, I think that you brilliantly balance again in the book the, the the cultural historical dimension that you were just sketching a moment ago, and then also the fact that there was a theology at play here, right? You used the phrase mystical theology several times a few minutes ago, and I think it's worth maybe underscoring for the audience also that there's a normative dimension here that okay, in different ways, depending who we're talking about in your book, but there was a clear connection between the way they did or didn't perform the friendships in their lives and what they believed would get them closer to the divine. And in some sense, for me, maybe one of the most shocking things in the book, uh, and I like, I love the, the, the phrasing you use, the, uh, the attack that this meant for some of them, if not all of them, on the procreative matrimonial ideal. That's your phrase. Basically, and you also say that made them anti-family, which is very striking when we're talking about uh, Catholics who are cast to certain varying degrees in different ways into the limelight. Now, I know that some of these people are more central 
to the world of Roman Catholicism, and some really live what your subtitle suggests on its edges. For you, is the anti-family move a mark of being on the edges of Roman Catholicism, or is it actually an essential way of understanding their relationship to faith? Thank you. I, that is um, that was one of the biggest surprises for me over the course of this research. And I say a little bit about this in the introduction to the book that when I first, you know, discovered these people and especially discovered how expansive their friendship networks were and how much these friendship networks fueled such bold political action, you know, Devi in chapter three and four was one of the very few Catholics in Europe who were actively organizing in the resistance to Nazism, you know, she and, you know, Claude McKay's anti-racist work, Gabriella Mistral's work in anti-fascism, and all of this fueled by this notion of spiritual friendship. I found it really inspiring and, and just kind of fabulous in a way. And I knew too, as a kind of as a feminist, that there was something much broader, especially in the lives of the women, that their love, they had dedicated their lives and their loves to something much broader than the nuclear family. And I found that, you know, in terms of kind of a feminist kind of recovering a feminist history of Catholicism, really interesting that they weren't nuns nor mothers, but they were kind of living off center from the dominant options available for women on, at the time. But the deeper I dug, honestly, the more disturbing and strange this anti-family thrust came to seem. And, and really, I, I do believe that that was sort of disturbing and strange, that every single protagonist in my book rejected heterosexual procreative marriage. None of them were married and had children in a, um, in a conventional sense. I'll, I'll, I'll say something about some caveats because there were people with children in the, in this book. Um, but in all cases, that wasn't just a slogan or a symbol, anti-family spiritual friendship instead of family, but there were actual children and actual spouses and actual elderly parents in this network who were treated quite horribly. Um, Gabriela Mistral adopted, uh, a adopted a son who died by suicide as a teenager. Louis Massignon had three children with his wife. And he, I found in his correspondence that he said, you know, whenever he thought of all of his family obligations, you know, especially to his children, he felt like he was, his face was getting eaten by a rat. Um, and, um, and, and on and on. And so it would, as I say, you know, it would have really have been something extraordinary to be friends with any of these people, but it would have been quite heartbreaking to be a child in this world. And there were children in this world. I mean, Claude McKay's another one. His, when his first partner became pregnant, she returned to Jamaica and, and he never really knew his daughter. But it was, um, you know, it was, there was kind of a, I think this sort of exceeds the bounds of Catholicism, but at the time, this kind of you know, almost bohemian artistic intellectual sensibility of, you know, the nuclear family was bourgeois, was dull, and they were after something else. They were artists, they were thinkers, they were writers. Um, and in a way, as, as a woman, you know, and as a mother myself, I'm always, you know, kind of inspired by the way that they keep alive other paths for women, you know, that it's, I think it's even harder today thinking of, paths for men and women that just could look like a very, very fulfilled life that doesn't have children. I think there's just such an assumption that a fulfilled life looks like 
marriage and children, not necessarily heterosexual marriage, but marriage and children. And they really, really, you, you look at their lives and they are so full and they're so full of love and they are so abundant and rich, but it looked like a very, very sad place to be a child. So there was a, there was like kind of a, something sad and there was a tragic, I think a, a tragic dimension to this world too. And that was certainly one of them. You gave Massignon as an example. He seemed to treat a number of different types of people in his life quite badly. I mean, of course, the quote that you referenced is, I mean, I, I as a parent too, I really cringed when I read that in your book. Uh, but what strikes me, I mean, just separately from the question of spiritual friendship in his case, uh, or in maybe less extreme cases in the book, the Catholic Church in the time period you're writing about did at least if we're talking from the Roman perspective, take a pretty clear stance on the procreative matrimonial ideal, as you put it, right? Got Casti Connubi from 1930, certainly by the mid-1960s, although this comes uh, maybe even at the postscript of your story, you've got it, the restatement in Humane Vitae after Vatican II. How, how in terms of the actual sexual teaching of Roman Catholicism, do your protagonists understand what it meant to be uh, in pursuit of salvation, whether on the margins or more centrally in the Catholic Church? Right. Thanks. That, that's that's a good question. You know, um, I would say they were all somewhat neo-medievalists. You know, they were inspired by the monks and nuns. They all had some kind of attachment, some sort of real compulsion about medieval spirituality and monasticism. They found that to be a sort of radical spiritual and ethical alternative to so much in modernity. They kind of read modernity quite darkly. You know, these are, this is mostly, you know, the years surrounding World War II, post-World War I, interwar period, but they had all lived through horrendous violence, experienced pogroms, exile, war. So modernity was read darkly, as it is for many Catholics. So they they turned to medieval and wanted to sort of organize their lives in disjunction from the modern ideals. So for them, you know, living in networks that were kind of small, kind of volitional networks of friends or small intentional communities looked more medieval than just, you know, marriage and having children. Um, so they, it's interesting because, you know, for all of the Catholic promotion of family values, the whole monastic ideal is so, so different than that, you know? Um, and so it has been shocking to see a figure like Jacques and Raisa Maritain who were very monastic in a certain way to be evoked for things like gender complementarity, heterosexual procreative marriage, which they are. And they, I think would really be shocked to think that, you know, the ultimate love between people finds expression in pregnancy and marriage. I think that they would, would balk at that. And, you know, Jacques Bernard Doring, the late wonderful scholar of the Maritans who died a couple of years ago at Notre, from Notre Dame, he has published some interesting articles about Jacques and contraception. And he was, you know, some of his correspondence suggests that he was maybe open to considering contraception in marriage, 
but he thought he didn't want, he said he didn't want to really put himself out there on that issue. It might risk and damage what he felt to be the more important work on per- furthering democracy and countering kind of far right political movements and so forth. Um, but some of the women like Devi in the book, um, Alan Terry and so forth, you know, they just kind of live their lives that, you know, one of the things that I find different for them they didn't say a whole lot about church teaching on sexuality or, or anything else. It was a kind of a Catholicism um, where the center of gravity was the lives of the saints, spiritual friendships, inspiring theology, art, poetry, not so much, you know, what the bishop, what moral teachings came out of Rome, you know? So, so I think that they didn't say a whole lot about that. Like they never would have written anything on Casti Canubi, you know, and so it's hard for that to imagine them writing anything on Humanae Vitae. You know, they, they didn't have their sights set on Rome or the Vatican. And so therefore also, I think that's one of the reasons that the women haven't been taken up so much by things like feminist theology or feminist approaches to Catholicism. They said very little about like women's ordination or, you know, they, they didn't really write explicitly about that. They didn't really almost had, they didn't even really want the church to change that much. They were just sort of summoning alternatives themselves, I would say. You know, they weren't kind of knocking on the door waiting for the Vatican to do anything differently, I would say. I mean, Jacques is different. He was really working on the church's teaching on, on political philosophy. In some sense, Jacques Maritain feels like the figure apart in this story. So I feel bad coming back to him. Also, you know, I wonder about this myself when I was reading uh, your book on various occasions, because he, he, I think probably before I sat down and started reading the book, I assumed that Raisa and Jacques would be really at the center of it. And to some extent, they are. For me, Davi comes through even more centrally in the book. I don't know if, if that was uh, your original intent, but... I wonder specifically in terms of someone like Jacques Maritain, who for all of his consistency in many ways was pretty good at compartmentalizing and was able to interact with, let's call it, well, mainstream politics in a way that none of the other people in your book really could. I would pose the question, did he maybe feed into certain hierarchies of power that you're trying to deconstruct in this book. And I mean, we've, we've skirted this question uh, a few times already, but you're very clear about it in your book that there is a kind of implicit or sometimes explicit assumption about suffering, maybe even a, an Orientalism of suffering or a, a fetishization of suffering. If we talk about racial and gender difference and having written the book and having put it out there, I'm curious what you think now, uh, especially you know, given the events of the past two years, what what are the lessons in terms of the stories that you reconstructed and explored for getting beyond hierarchies of power? Uh, whether or not you know we like what any one individual person did in the book, uh, and and relocating uh, race and gender in non-normative ways uh, in in the story. Thank you. That's a, that's such a good question. There's so much there to think about. Um, I would say I, I wish I had been a little more explicit about this in the book. I mean, this is really sometimes I feel like I, you know, was so fascinated with the details of all these lives. I was so fine, you know, the really fine grained analysis throughout. But looking back and thinking about 
you know, their relationship with power and, and lessons for today. I would say that you're right that Jacques Maritain is the one who is with us today as the one who maybe from one perspective made the biggest difference. I mean, he was, you know, at the table, you know, drafting the UN Declaration of Human Rights. I mean, hugely, hugely influential um, in, you know, even Western political philosophy. He was an ambassador to the Vatican and and friends with the Pope. But see, he was sort of a white French male, you know, Catholic you know, that he was invited into all those rooms. He was, you know, everywhere he went around the world, it was like, you know, the podium waiting for him, the auditorium filled. So he was part of that network of power. And these other people, you know, Claude McKay, the black Jamaican poet, Davi, you know, the one of the the first female who went to the Institut Catholique, you know, they just simply weren't invited into that space. So then we kind of think, well, So do we just sort of tell the story of who had the most influence? So then Jacques is the most important person because we can look at like the UN and Rome and and it's, you know, Jacques is a protagonist. Or do we look at some of these more marginal thinkers and think, well, what other possibilities are they pointing us to of maybe kind of fragments or experiments that didn't lead to direct centers of power, but maybe led, led to alternatives that might even be provocative or paths we still haven't taken that might want that we might want to take today or that we don't really know the impact they have maybe we need to learn a bit more about the impact that they had so like for example Davi who created this sort of international post-war utopian commune in in uh in um rural France and Normandy after the war to kind of do an international post-war experiment um these and this other experiment in interracial solidarity, some of the experiments in Muslim Christian friendship that were happening in Cairo. You know, we think of these as these little kind of one off things, but who knows? I mean, these would, who knows? You know, maybe we need to kind of go back to thinking of using the resources at hand, even if our power feels very marginal, to not just critique but to summon alternative possibilities in the world. You know, even if I'd say some of the alternatives that they offered were local, it was alternatives for Islamic and Catholic scholars to come together in Cairo. Yes. Was the UN inviting them? No, you know, no, but it's like, it was something. And sometimes I think about, well, what if those sort of collaborative, interesting, you know, interfaith, um, interracial, um, collabor- experimental collaborations were happening in cities all over the world, then things start to look kind of different. But yeah, they they weren't connected to the powers of the state, I would say, in the way that, that Jacques was or the, or the ecclesial powers. But, um, you know, as someone, as a woman myself, very, I don't have, you know, connections to any powers at the Vatican or connections to powers of the state. But I think a lot of people who I hope might read this book, people for whom Catholicism in some weird way might mean something like you're born Catholic, you can't quite get away from it, or you're attracted to some parts of it, but you have no faith in what the bishops are doing or very little sense that you have any power of what happens in Rome, or even that that would be a worthwhile use of your life to try to get the bishop to do something. These are other models of what kind of Catholic creativity and Catholic 
alternatives um, that were meant to counteract some of the violence of modernity, what those alternative possibilities might look like in the forms of journals, communities. Um, they were ex- kind of utopian experiments, I would say. Um, and maybe they are kind of some of the paths not taken. Um, and I think they are interesting for people who today live on the edges of Catholicism, just like most of the people in my book did. Um, but I think that the the Louis Massignon and the Jacques Maritain, who were the more connected to the power, are interesting because although they had their fingers on all those levers of power, they were invited to all those rooms, they were much more attracted to the edges. They were pull, pulled in by this kind of more mystical, poetic sort of faith. That's where their heart lied. I mean, that's where they were. That's, those were who their spiritual friends were the ones on the edges um, and the writers that they liked and so forth. So I think that that sort of, that's why they, that's why they're in the book too, because it wasn't, it was kind of a interesting way to think about the relationship between the center and the margins and someone like Massignon and Maritain, I think represent the center a little bit more. Well, the, you just brought up center and margins, and then you, you also used, I think, the very important word local. I, I, you, this is global Catholicism, but it's cast through a particular lens, uh, the global Catholicism that we see in your book. And so these questions of geography on the one hand and scale on the other are really striking for me. Your book is about radicals. Some folks are less radical than others. Some folks compartmentalize it better than others. But at the end of the day, how much of this gets scaled up? If you go with the medieval ideal or the neo-medieval ideal, it makes sense to think locally because that's what, what the reality was, just logistically speaking, in, in, in the Middle Ages. Uh, so can we even talk about scaling up to a global Catholicism if we're, if we're sort of seeing kind of local solutions? I guess on some level, I'm still thinking about this question of power. You have folks like Maritain Massignon to whom doors were open in fora where automatically whatever they said or whatever they contributed would get reprinted in X or Y publication and boom, their name would be out there and it would be part of the global discourse. But then you have uh, someone like Claude McKay or you know, even Mary Cahill, who in her way, for her own way, was very powerful and very influential, but never really thought of wanting to sort of push from a local a, a local activism into a global activism. So I guess my question to boil it down is it how much of a prospect was there for any kind of mainstreaming here with any of the solutions that you see coming from the less known folks in your story? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks for that. You know, I would say, you know, that the main intellectual, the main work of all of the people in the book what was probably their intellectual or artistic work. I mean, this is sort of an intellectual or intellectual history in the sense. So it kind of is the question of like, what power does I do ideas have? What power does writing have? And, you know, at the time, you know, a lot of the writing um, that I read from them that was published were in these kind of avant-garde lefty, Catholic, sometimes not even Catholic philosophical journals. I mean, Piotr probably stuff the similar sorts of journals that you read for that you analyzed for your book. But 
because of this is a point I make in the book too that because of the global scale of French colonialism, they all were had some connection to the French language, and the French kind of colonial spirituality language was totally global, but that did give them a kind of global uh, circuit that they could be a part of and that they really did with their writings, their poetry, the books they tried to get published. You know, Gabriela Mistral did tons of work translating French authors into Spanish, but her, a lot of her writings and Devi too, were writings that they thought would put into the world ideas that would counter xenophobia, fascism. And so if we think today of how didn't fascism totally take over the world, or we think of today, the upsurge of fascism and xenophobia around the world, it was like, I think of their labor of of poetry, of ideas, of essays, really trying to put forward understandings of Catholicism that celebrated Judaism and diversity that um, were interested in evoking sympathies for refugees and things like that. So it is sort of in a sense of, you know, can we, can we connect the dots between Mistral's poem about a Jewish refugee fleeing her homeland that's written in this beautifully empathetic way to kind of state power, you know, what power does a poem have? But I think all of us working in intellectual history would say it's hard to at least draw a straight line from A to B, but it would be a very frightening world to imagine a world without anti-fascist poets and art and philosophers and ideas, you know, that they kind of would start kind of galvanizing people and galvanizing um discussion and other ways of imagining human community that were not xenophobic, that were multicultural, um, nonviolent, skeptical of authoritarian forms of power. But I would say that, and that's something that was tricky in my book that I think it's tricky for me too. It's like, we so want to kind of politicize everything in the 20th century. Well, like, what's the political payoff of this? What's, and I do that too, you know? But sometimes it was just poems or it was just essays. And and it's like, are we okay with that kind of power being worthy enough of studying? You know, so something that's what I think about that. I think about ultimately they, this isn't really a story of political activists that wasn't their gifts, but they were all very much engaged as writers and artists. Um, Yeah. That, I think, is a marvelous way to sum up. I had some other questions, but I'm just going to move on uh, to to my last question, actually, which looks beyond uh, kindred spirits to whatever it is you're working on now. So, Brenna, what's next? Okay, thank you. Well, now that I'm, you know, done with these two very sort of archival-heavy, you know, French language, non-English language books, I decided to work on a project that would be really much more in service of a local community. So my family and I volunteer with an organization in East Harlem that was started by a French order of nuns, Little Sisters of the Assumption. And they have an agency in East Harlem that serves the immigrant, Spanish-speaking immigrant community since 1958. And I've volunteered and I'm on their board. And they have asked me to um, help write the history of their 
um, of their time in East Harlem. And because I know, you know, about the French order of nuns and then also the kind of uh, Catholic experiments with solidarity, it's very much the same kind of a shared worldview, but this is much more, you know, I'm interviewing many of the nuns who are in their late eighties and nineties, and I'm co-authoring it with um, someone in the Spanish department. Cause we've interviewed a lot of the undocumented families who for over a period of 20, sometimes 30 years, have engaged the services of um, Little Sisters of the Assumption. It's called LSA Family Health Services in East Harlem. So we've interviewed the families and interviewed the nuns, and it's going to be the first story, you know, the first sort of narrative written about their their history in the community. And so I really see that as something very much in service of my local community, the people who are doing great work. Um, and it has been a really wonderful thing to stay connected to during COVID when things have been so grim and depressing. I mean, these are people right now doing truly incredible work um, that kind of counteracts what feels like an increasingly, I mean, it is an increasingly xenophobic, anti-immigrant, um, dangerous and racist country that these nuns and the community of social workers that they've hired have been doing really, really good work the whole time. And so it's helped my research team, my my co-author stay connected to that alternative. Um, but it was supposed to be just a little light, almost like storytelling kind of thing, much more kind of publicly accessible. But now we're learning a lot more. It's getting more and more complicated, but I'm trying to keep it just a light slim book that can be shared with the community. Um, and so that's, I'm in the, I'm in the midst of that right now. I was going to say, I don't know how light that sounds. That sounds very powerful in terms of literally what we've been discussing, thinking through the broader implications of the local, like, almost like you could have been a character in Kindred Spirits. <laughs> yeah, that is a good point. And actually that is kind of what is interesting in the book is like the, how they navigate kind of the structural inequalities in New York City and, you know, serve these families, but they want to be more than a direct service. They want to get into immigration law and all that. And so it is partly how they move between this more broader structural and this much more kind of micro micro level at like a 20 block square radius of East Harlem. That's where they're focused, but they're trying to deal with law, um, improving laws in New York federally and so forth in a, for the for the most vulnerable you know undocumented people in East Harlem well I'm really glad to hear that you're doing that I, I want to read that when it's done uh, let me say thank you Professor Brenna Moore for being our guest today uh, this has been a wonderful conversation and I want to thank our uh, listeners for joining us uh, please I urge you all to go out and buy the book, Kindred Spirits, Friendship and Resistance at the Edges of Modern Catholicism, out just last year, 2021, with University of Chicago Press. Brenna Moore, thank you again. Thank you so much, Piotr. This was really an honor and a pleasure, and I loved your questions, and I appreciate the time so much. Thank you, everybody, for listening. <laughs>